So we're going to start off by rapping for everyone. Yes. Because in seminary, both of us took rap classes. I didn't. Yes. Oh. Actually, oh. Josh didn't, but he happened to learn it in I South Florida. I took poetry classes. <laughs> poetry. All right, so if, I, if you don't know me, uh, my name is Vinia, and this is Josh. Josh is uh, our college young adult pastor, um, and I have a little um, closet-sized office in the Shepherding Center, so that's what I do. But uh, we're going to be going over the, the last part of today's uh, uh, deal in, uh, in the instruments for Redeemer's hands, and it's going to be going through speak and do. And so... Uh, this kind of becomes, the whole thing is practical, but this gets into some of the, like, nitty-gritty, like, checking ourselves. What do we do when we actually engage this type of thing? So, first off, let's actually, uh, to, for the theme of the first part of what we're going to be talking about, it's going to be dealing with the concept of rebuking. And, and that becomes kind of a weird concept. Uh, I don't know about you, but when I even hear the word rebuke, all I can think of is, like, some... Pentecostal pastor speaking like, Satan, I rebuke you. Like that, that's like what I hear in my mind. I don't know about you. And so we don't like use that kind of word, especially in a passive aggressive American society. We just don't rebuke anything. It seems kind of weird. But if you were to take a, a second at your tables, have a dialogue with the person next to you or as a table, and it's kind of a two-part question. Say you, someone just called you up or in our context, someone would text us because you know, God forbid we actually engage in person. But they text you saying, hey, I'm going to come over to your house and I need to rebuke you on something. <laughs> what, what kind of emotions might you be experiencing? Like, how is that word loaded? Like, what would you experience? And, and to go along with that, then the, the question needs to be answered, what do we actually think about when we hear the word rebuke? So take just a couple seconds and dialogue that and then we'll, we'll bring everyone back. All right, go ahead and start wrapping up your thoughts. All right, so hopefully uh, some interesting conversations came up, and as we go through this next sec- uh, session, some of the concept of rebuke will come out, and hopefully it will define some things and then maybe even um, you know, remove some of the fear and anxiety that comes with that as well. Also, if you haven't noticed, I'm... Uh, my voice is a little extra sexy today. I have a cold. So if, if I start hacking over anyone, I apologize. I do have like a, a thing in a uh, cough drop deal. I'm going to rebuke you for you, using the word sexy. Yeah, in church. I know. I'm sorry. My voice is very Al Green today. So anyway, is that better? <laughs> better. Adjective. I just, anyway. Right. Okay. So the, the, a lot of what I'm pulling from your you're going to leave the session and say, wow, Vinny is so brilliant that he came up with all this stuff. And it's like, well, the two aren't mutually exclusive. But um, I actually, I literally am lifting this information from the, the workbook that we're going to be using in March and April and May when we go through the study. So uh, hardly anything up here is original. Uh, it, it's definitely plagiarism. I guess it's not plagiarism because I'm citing my source. But uh, this is all literally a preview of what we're going to go through. It's going to be a lot of fun. So the way Paul Tripp defines rebuke, uh, and I think it's a pretty strong, consistent, biblical uh, definition of rebuke, it's, it's bringing truth to where change is needed. And so I don't know about you, but when I hear the word rebuke, I get an anxiety. Uh, I, Josh and I had a conversation the other day about how uh, we were both uh, like kind of the problem kids in school. I know you don't believe it with him because he's kind of like a saint, but you're like, yeah, Vinny, like, <laughs> that's a shock. But um, like as someone who lived in the principal's office uh, for most of my scholastic career, 
like even when like my boss will call me now and it's like, hey, we need to talk tomorrow. My first thought isn't, oh, cool, I wonder what we're going to dialogue about. It's like, what did I do, right? Because I kind of grew up in an atmosphere of being rebuked. And so there's a stigmatism, uh, I guess just a stigma, not stigmatism, a stigma that comes along with, uh, with, with any sort of conflict like this. Uh, so, excuse me, blame it on the cold meds. So, if rebuke is bringing truth to where change is needed, and most of us in this room probably have an area or 15 of where change is needed, um, what, what involves rebuke then? It involves another person to be involved with this, because I don't know about you, but my, my mirror is pretty spotted. It's, it's pretty uh, uh, cloudy, and so I'm not usually seeing the things in myself. It's the stigmatism. That, it's, it's the stigmatism, exactly. Thank you. That's why we brought him along. We'll be here all week. And so usually a rebuke involves someone else, <clears throat> right? And, and, and so that means someone else is probably going to see your life a little clearer than you see it. So this is an act of patience and committed love on the, on the end of the other person who is providing the rebuke. And that's what, if it's not rooted in that, if that's not the place it comes from, then it just becomes really weird. And so a way of looking at this is also, if, if we've heard about the term, uh, term church discipline, if you've been in the church, even that like, can kind of become, it's like, oh, it's weird, and it's just something that, man, I get called before the elders, and it's like, what did I do now? It's like getting called into the principal's office, right? And even something like the, the true model of church discipline is actually a really beautiful, wonderful thing that ought to be practiced more often, but we, we often think it's just getting called into the principal's office, and then you get in trouble for something, and it's, you know, it's, it's like when I got called in the principal's office. It's not like I walked in and said, like, hey, Bob, how's it going? Good to see you. I mean, it was almost like that relationship, but it wasn't like this, this, this buddy thing that we had going on where, where I knew there was a mutual love. Like, I screwed up, and Vinny is going to get in trouble again, and here comes the consequence again for the however many times this week. And, and discipline uh, and rebuke, it's this thing that happens in the context of a loving relationship where you actually care about the person, and it's not, I don't want this person to, I, I don't want this person to, to keep doing this thing because I'm sick of just dealing with it. That's, that's not where the motivation for rebuke comes from. That's just for your convenience, right? A true rebuke says, I actually love this person, and I hate that they're doing this, and it could be anywhere on the, the range, the scale, but I hate that they're doing this thing, and I want them to stop it because I know that this isn't the best for them in their own process of being more like Jesus. You following me so far where we're at in, the t- in, in terms of the actual internal motivation that comes from rebuke? Hey, yeah, yeah. So um, just with the stigma of the word rebuke, maybe some other, what are some other words uh, to, to help alleviate the astigmatism um, so that we can understand maybe some other concepts in the scriptures that are in the ballpark of rebuke, but not specifically, maybe, maybe, maybe those passages don't specifically use that word. So let's, uh, let's actually go there and then we'll come back to the other thought. Let's look at a couple passages that are kind of dealing on this side of the equation. This is good. We actually didn't work this out. We're just that much in sync. It's those rap classes we took in seminary. I know. So one of the passages that, uh, that Eric brought up earlier, that's kind of like a, a landing spot passage for even approaching this entire conversation, would be 2 Corinthians 5. And so if we were to, if we were to look at this whole thing, uh, if anyone is in Christ, and another synonymous term would be if they are a Christian, or if they are a believer, if they are saved, if they are justified, anything like that, those are synonymous terms. You can't be in Christ and not saved. Uh, anyone who has repented, anyone who has done those sorts of things, it's all the same thing. So anyone who's on that side of the equation, he or she will be gender inclusive on this one because Paul was including everyone. They are a new creation. 
The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ did what? Reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Stopping right there. This is not one of those situations where Paul is addressing church leaders only. You notice this isn't in 1 Timothy or Titus or those areas that seem to be addressing specifically people who are holding to the church office. So to kind of piggyback on what Matt was talking about earlier, this is very much Ephesians 4 stuff. This is something that is given to the congregation. So we, we think of the word ministry, and we oftentimes assign it to the people who have offices at the church and have a business card and an extension, an official email account, right? And that, that's not what this is speaking about. If you are, who, who has the ministry of reconciliation? Those people. So when you, when you sign up for this whole Jesus thing, it's not just, I say it a prayer, so now I got to go to heaven when I die, and I'm just going to kind of wait it out until that happens. No, no, no. You're actually, like, signing up for a, a vocation. There's something that, there, there's an obligation that comes along with this. And the obligation isn't the thing that saves you. It's part of the reason why you're saved, which we can then go into Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. But that's a different sermon. So, verse 19. We've been given a, a ministry of reconciliation. That is... In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So, once again, us, these people. Therefore, we, all those who are in Christ, are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Everything is connecting to this ministry of reconciliation. For our sake, all believers, not just church leaders, for all believers, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. It's a thing that we experience and live out to the world uh, in order uh, to experience reconciliation. So just to, to, to find a couple things based on then what Josh is, is asking, what are some terms or concepts that go along with this? Well, first we need to know where it comes from. But uh, uh, let's see. I'm going to skip around a little bit. It's okay. You'll, you could follow along in, in some of the notes. So 1 Timothy 5 specifically utilizes the term rebuke. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that everyone else may stand in fear. There's this concept of saying, as a church community, and, and this gets out of the privates that Matt was talking about. This is the personal. This is amongst the congregation. When we see people who are sinning, right, in our community, that's something that affects us. It's not just, you know, this is where we need to remove the Americanism that just says, I could do whatever I want to do, and it affects me personally. This is the whole point of 1 Corinthians 6, where, where Paul says, hey, if you are a believer, don't sin with a prostitute, because your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and you're all a temple of the Holy Spirit together. Therefore, when you sin with your, uh, with, against a prostitute, you're actually bringing that into the body. And so there's an aspect that says we need to rebuke those, we need to challenge those, and, and bring healthy change to those within the body. Because what you do isn't just about affecting you. It's actually affecting the believers themselves. It's affecting the whole community of, of the people of God. And so, and, and so this concept in First Timothy specifically uses the word rebuke. And, and this word in Greek, it, it has a wide range. It's to examine someone. It's to bring the light, expose, to bring a person to the point of recognizing wrongdoing, to express disapproval, to penalize, to punish, discipline. It can mean all these things. And based on the situation, 
you might go anywhere on this list because this is kind of like a spectrum, right? Where it's like super extreme. We'll use red because that's bad, right? Um, and, and then this is just like, you know, maybe a little more soft. There's, there's a spectrum that might work on here. And so depending on the situation, you might act accordingly. So the, just to lay a f- uh, framework, this is what we would consider the basis of what rebuke looks like in discipleship amongst the community. But so is there another, you know, are there other passages that talk about this sort of thing? Well, one, I think one of the, the clearest ones would be Matthew 18, which is our favorite way to actually close, like to open and close group prayers. So all you small group leaders, we've all done this, right? And so you've been corrected in a class by Vinny on biblical interpretation, then you don't do it anymore. But we all say, uh, we, we, we start off a, cl- uh, a small group and say, hey, God, thank you. You know, it's Tuesday night. We're, we're two or three are gathered. There you are in the midst of us. So thank you that you are here right now, um, which is the very bottom of this passage. So that's not about like small groups? This is not about small groups, no. Yeah, yeah. So let, let's actually find out what this passage is about. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and tell him his fault. What, what would another way of go and tell him his fault, what, what could we also call that? It's rebuke, right? That's exactly, so even though Jesus is not using this terminology here, it's the same concept, which also gets into as, as Bible students, when we study, when we do word studies, like we d- if we did a word study for rebuke, it wouldn't come up at Matthew 18, even though Matthew 18 is one of the, like, the heart of Jesus teaching us how to deal with conflict. So, Wait, so wanted, oh, just really ahead. quick, can I clarify? So Jesus said this. This is a Jesus say. Th- oh, wow. Okay. So this just isn't okay. Paul being a little stickler about how to keep everyone yeah, in order. Yeah, so Jesus says this, even though Jesus also says this whole thing about judging your neighbor. In Matthew 7, exactly. Yeah, this is interesting. So, so even in Matthew, so who's, familiar, who's ever had that thrown at you? Like you say something and, well, he, uh, uh, judge not lest thee be judged in, in Matthew 7, 1. Which is interesting because if we read the, conce- uh, the context of Same Ma- book, too. That's Matthew, Matthew right? Exactly. Oh. This is later. Exactly. See how he's being a little, he's pulling it. Uh, it's like, we didn't even work this out. Look at this. Um, but and even, in, uh, even in the rest of Matthew chapter 7, you're then going on to like have to, judge to make sure that there's no false teachers among you. And even the concept of uh, removing a, a, a log from your own eye before you take the speck out of the other, it's like, well, it's a process that you can go through. It's just, how are you doing this? Are you being judgmental in the way you are doing these things? Which might be a, a better way of, of going through and understanding Matthew 7, 1 specifically, before you go through the rest of that passage uh, as well. Yeah, and so more on the helpful side instead of just interrogating you. Matthew, when you think of the Sermon on the Mount, it it is so much about the heart and addressing motive, right? The scribes and the Pharisees praying in order to be seen. And it seems even in Matthew 7, he's still hitting on the heart there. When you judge, do not do it as the scribes and Pharisees, where you're coming to them with a judgmental, condemning attitude. Absolutely. And And that's where something like the Sermon on the Mount Man, as Christians, we don't read that enough. This is like the greatest sermon ever given in the history of the world, and we kind of, I don't know why we don't live in that thing, because it's so convicting and so uplifting, uh, and just, there's just everything, man, it's, it's an amazing three chapters. So if you haven't, just go through today, read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Sermon on the Mount, and just see, hey, how can we get to the heart of Jesus and how he wants us to engage uh, the world? And it starts with us, right? Like, I tell you that, uh, or you, you've heard it said, that if you look at a, or if you, you know, if you engage with someone else who's married, you've committed adultery. I say that if even if you look with them, right, with, with lust, that you've committed adultery. I, you've, you've, it, you've heard it's been said if you kill someone, you've committed murder. I say if you hate someone in your heart, you've committed murder. So right, what is Jesus doing right off the bat? He's internalizing things. 
And he's saying it's not just about doing something externally. You've got to start with what's going on in here. And chances are you're not going to kill someone externally, you know, physically, if it hadn't started in here uh, to begin with. You check yourself here and the actions are going to come from the heart, which is exactly what Matt was talking about earlier. You don't just change behavior. We don't want to get people to stop killing other people, although that's good. It's a better society to live in, right? Let's be honest. But if, if the goal is to merely get people to stop killing other people, what's going on inside that they're suppressing? It's not actually dealing with the motive to want to kill someone themselves. You're probably just going to walk around with a very angry, hostile community of people. It's a behavior modification in itself. It might make for a better community, but it's actually, it, that person is no closer to God than the, the, you know, the mass murderer themselves. So then back to Matthew 18. We're reading Matthew 18 in light of Matthew 7, and we're reading Matthew 7 in light of Matthew 18. Absolutely, absolutely. So if someone, a fellow Christian, and even Matthew, it, when he records Jesus' words as saying brothers or brothers and sisters, it's always meaning fellow believers. If a fellow believer sins against you, Go and tell them their fault between them. You know, go in private. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Also, you know, Jesus is speaking in the context of this book of Matthew, but the the whole book of Matthew is just rooted in the Torah and Moses as well. Because, you know, two or three witnesses, that's that's Torah language for how uh, something is uh, established as credible. Uh, let's see, verse 17, if he doesn't, if he refuses to listen, so if you rebuke him, if you challenge this person with someone and they refuse, then you tell it to the church. Um, so you, you go alone, you take, you know, a couple with you, then you might have to go to the church, and, and if he doesn't even listen to the church, let him be as a Gentile and a tax collector. You know, it's someone who's not fellowshipping with the people of God, and that's a whole other class on what that means, we won't go into that now. But verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again, I say, if two of you agree, so this is, you know, this is the, the brother who sins and you alone, you know, just, or whoever is involved in the process, wherever that process goes. If you uh, agree on anything, uh, they ask, it will be done by them or for them by the Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am amongst you. The, the presence of God, uh, what the kingdom of God looks like, which is a whole theme of Matthew, that exists when reconciliation happens amongst believers, specifically. And it happens when unbelievers become believers. But rec- this, is, this is about reconciliation, and it's about re- rebuke. Even though those two words aren't used in this passage by Jesus, that's what this is talking about. Here. So this is a very good example, along with, you know, a, a passage like uh, 1 Timothy 5. Well, a practical example is what Jesus actually lays out in Matthew 18. And we would call this church discipline, and that sounds, we get weirded out about that, especially in a culture that doesn't like to confront. But when we realize that discipline is not terrible in itself, we could, we could kind of remove the stigmatism from it. So um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna skip it around a lot, and then I, I swear I'll get in, in order. Uh, I shouldn't swear by anything, huh? That's in the Sermon on the Mount, too. Anyway, so even the, even the concept of discipline, we hear that, we think it's like this, for me, someone who grew up in the, in the principal's office, it's, it's you did this bad, now you are going to be disciplined. And that usually meant like you're in trouble, there's a consequence. And the two terms became synonymous. So one thing that we also need to recognize is discipline is not the consequence. Uh, I, I was a psych major. Any psych majors in here? 
to people who have useless degrees unless you went on to become a psychologist. So <laughs> literally, a, a psychology major, it doesn't do you any good unless you do a bachelor's degree in psychology is useless. Um, unless you need a job that just requires you have any kind of degree. So one of the things in a, in a childhood development class, we were talking about the difference between discipline and uh, consequences. And I'd grown up thinking they're the same thing. And the professor was, was um, pushing us, saying they're not the same thing. The point of discipline is to create self-discipline. And it's like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. I was like 30 years old before I figured that one out. As a good student, I had to go back to college much later in life. But that's when we, when we instill discipline on someone, it's, discipline is not the consequence. I'm disciplining, I'm putting something in order, boundaries or something, so that eventually they'll be able to do it themselves. So there's self-discipline. So when, when we're not good at exercising or eating or whatever on our own, we get an app, and the app reminds us, and we have to plug in, and maybe someone else sees my food content or intake for the day. And, and I do this maybe for a year or two because I know that, if, man, I can't have this cheeseburger because then I'm going to have to put it in there, and I have to let so-and-so know about it, blah, blah, blah. I get to the point, though, hopefully, with the discipline that I have enough self-discipline that I might just not want to go have that cheeseburger, and I want to order the salad on my own. I don't know who would make that decision, but, but, but that's the goal, right? Because we want to eventually do the things on our own. We want to have the discipline or the self-discipline to do the thing. And, and that's what happens with rebuke as well. We rebuke someone, hopefully that they'll get to the point where they're saying, okay, I'm doing what I ought not to, and, and I want to have the self-motivation to actually do the right thing on my own. That needs to, to be the, the goal for rebuke. And so just as, you know, as parents in here, we might get frustrated with a kid when they do something, and uh, having an 18-month-old, I've already experienced this. It's really weird. Uh, but it's like, you know, like the, the, you know he's just, he does the thing again, and I want to, you know, I want to give them the spanking, and I'm justifying it saying because you're supposed to spank your kid when they're bad. And really all it is is I'm just really pissed off, right? And, and like, I'm having like a total moment of transparency, and I know if any of you judge me, you're all, uh, you know, uh, lying right now because I know you're all with me, so I'm totally keeping this real. But you're just like, Ugh! like, because it's been going on for however many hours. And my, you know, they deserve the spanking. No, I'm just really ticked off right now, and I want to take it out on them right now. You get what I'm saying? Is that... Who in here, if, if I said, and I do that on a regular basis, and he really knows how, no, you would say, man, I'm calling CPS, Vinny. <laughs> right? I, I, by the way, I, I don't go through, it's the, and I, I have not ever, like, beat my kid. I'm not admitting to that. I'm saying the emotion of it. The point is, you, we would all agree that spanking our kids out of anger and out of that rage that happens, that is not good. That is not loving to my kid, and that's not actually going to help the situation. Can we agree on that? When we rebuke someone out of anger and I just hate what you do or I hate what else you have in your life that I just don't like because I don't agree with, how much fruit is that going to produce? Not. It's just like spanking, you're smacking your kid because you're angry, not because you're disappointing them and out of love. And we would hope that when we spank the kid or whatever, it hurts. It's like, oh, I don't, my dad used to tell me, he would tell me this a lot because it happened a lot, that I don't want to do this. This hurts me more than it hurts you. And I'm like, no, it doesn't. My butt really hurts right now, right? <laughs> Put away the belt then. But it's like that should be the way, it, that should be the motive that rebuke comes from as well. So we with me at just laying down a foundation on this? Yeah, really helpful passage that's, I think, illustrating exactly what you're talking about. Second uh, Thessalonians 5, 14. So, uh, did I say second? I meant first second. 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, 14. Let me just read this. We exhort you, brothers and sisters. So Paul is saying, 
brothers and sisters, do this. Warn those who are idle, comfort the discouraged, help the weak. And so here, what Paul is doing is he's, he's telling us when you offer rebuke or correction, you need to do so with, with the right attitude, right? If you came with like that sort of attitude towards the weak and you're just raging, right, that is going to turn someone uh, inward. That's going to cause a lot of hurt and pain, a lot of scars, right? And so Paul is saying we, we need to rebuke in such a way that we are keen on the attitude and the, the um, personality of the person we're talking to. Because n- some people might need the stern, the stern, like, harsh rebuke, and they can take that, and that takes a lot of wisdom figuring out who is that person. I'm, I'm assuming, may, sorry, but maybe when you were a kid, that may have been you, right? You needed the stern, <laughs> I'm just guessing. Um, <laughs> um, but there, there are other people who are maybe more sensitive, right? And it, it, it ta- I, I think of my wife when she, was, when she was a kid, like all her dad needed to do was just kind of look at her and like just twinkle his eyelashes just in the wrong way. And she was like on the ground in tears, right? That's all it took. Whereas people probably more like us, we needed a lot more than that, you know, maybe just shy of like a slap to the face, just shy of that. No, and so part of it is it, that becomes then interpersonal, and you actually have to know the person you're speaking with at that point. And That's it, where the no comes into play, right? You have to know the people in order to offer rebuke and correction in a way that's ever going to be helpful. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, and, and those are conversations that, that uh, you know, I might have with people where, uh, you know, I, like Matt and I talk a lot about stuff, and it's like, okay, I need to talk with this person about something. Do you think they're the type that... They're being confrontational to me, and so I need to push back hard because they, you know, you know how there's like that football coach mentality where the, the coach really respects the player who gets back up in his face? And, 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 but then there's the person who it's like, no, I, if I do that, I'm going to completely lose them. So part of it is just trying to take the time to figure out what's going to be the most effective way to deliver the information, not just here's the information and you need to, you need to receive it. Because that's what a good teacher does. And when we rebuke, we're all teachers at that point. A teacher, and I say this as someone who teaches, and my, my wife is a teacher. We talk about this kind of stuff all the time. A teaching is not just delivering information. It's delivering information in a way that your students will actually receive it and understand it. So if I'm teaching... Uh, a Sunday school class of third graders, I'm going to teach that very differently than if I'm going to teach the adults who are my small group leaders, many of you who are in my class. It's the same information, but I'm going to, and you're think, saying, of course you would teach that word different. Well, yeah, why is rebuke or correction any different than that? I want to get to know the person and, and speak into the way that they're going to receive it the best and not just assume I know how they're going to receive it the best. Yeah, and if I'm assuming, I'm always going to assume this is a weak brother or sister. You know, and, and what I've found is if you go in that direction, I'm just going to assume they're weak. I'm going to be very gentle with my words. I'm going to be very, um, you know, trying to lead, lead this brother to the, the water, let them drink for themselves, let them realize they're wrong. And then maybe, okay, a couple weeks later, I realize they didn't hear what I just said. And so I come back then maybe, maybe a little bit stronger this time. And I realize, man, they still aren't quite getting it. And then you have to sit down and say, hey, I, I brought this up multiple times and you're just not hearing me. And then you get more, more direct, more sh- strong in your language. And I, I think being the college pastor, you're engaging with young adults all the time. And we, just, we both talk with people a lot. It's always easier to fill the pool up than it is to drain the pool. Okay. Right? And so it's, it's easy if, if you take Josh's advice, which is let's assume, let's have a starting point, a baseline that's here. It's easier to do this than to come in guns blazing 
and then say, okay, well, let's back off a little bit because what's already been established in terms of the tone of the relationship and whatnot. So it's always easier to do that. The difficulty is just to placate and stay down here and then never actually move forward anywhere. And that becomes, that becomes a difficult part that we need to manage ourselves. Um, so um, let's cruise through some of this stuff. Uh, let's see. So we're called to be ambassadors of Christ. And just as Christ reconciled us to the Father vertically, we are entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation, which we would call horizontally. So oftentimes what happens in evangelical theology is we focus so much on the reconciliation that has happened between us personally, between us and God, that we forget that there's anything that needs to be done uh, horizontally as well, uh, people to people. And so the way I like to... Uh, like kind of a word or you know a word picture that works for me is the vertical is like the infinite chasm right like there's no way that I'm going to be able to reach God and restore that relationship it only is restored because the God of the universe stepped into his universe and and called me like that's the only way that's being that relationship is being reconciled there's no way that 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 infinite vertical chasm is ever going to be approached by me and nor would I ever even want to do that left in my own sinful nature but God did that for me. So if God can, can overcome the vertical, the infinite chasm that exists between me and him, okay, the, the, the vertical reconciliation that happens, how, much, how difficult then really in reality is the horizontal, which is really finite? Okay? So the infinite is, I can't do anything about that. That's a long way to go. It's literally infinite. But God did it. So the, horizontal, the relational aspect, the finite, that's actually doable. And this is where, when, uh, you know, I, I think it was Matt, uh, or maybe it was Eric earlier, talked about, you know, preaching the gospel to themselves. Like, the gospel isn't just for unsaved people. The gospel is for believers. Paul opens up his letter to the Romans saying, hey, faithful saints in Rome, you've been amazing, blah, blah, blah. I want to come to Rome and preach the gospel to you. Well, as evangelicals, we think, but they're already saved. What do they need to hear the gospel for? They need to hear the gospel because they're saved. And so the gospel reminds us, one of the things that reminds us is that because there's an infinite God who has, who has crossed an infinite chasm to restore us uh, and, uh, and reconcile us vertically, this actually is not a problem, regardless of what the other person looks like. And it'd be, it'd be easy to, to reconcile a relationship with someone like Josh. He's a, he's a really good guy. But what happens when it's the person who's not like Josh? Like when it's someone like me? You know, that, that's a little more difficult, right? So we need to remember then that we're preaching the gospel to ourselves in this and that our motivation for rebuke, it's got to be re reconciliation. Um, and, and that reconciliation is rooted in the gospel and what God has done through Jesus. So reconciliation and rebuke is not rooted in our opinion of what, how someone ought to be or in our anger, wanting to just you know, take it out on the kid because you're just mad, or our impatience, which is probably going to be rooted in the anger side of the equation. It's got to be rooted in a gospel love reminding us this is only possible and this is actually only true reconciliation because what God has done. Therefore, this actually is not that big of a deal. This can actually be done. Okay? So you follow me on that? And this is all just groundwork stuff. Um, okay. So practical rebuke. Here's some ways that Paul Tripp uh, defines this in his book. He says, we incarnate the love of Christ by helping people to see themselves in the mirror of God's word and calling them to accept responsibility for sins of their heart and behavior. So this is the goal of rebuke. It's, it, it's shining a, a, a mirror of God's word up to them and allowing them to see uh, themselves through God's word and through Jesus. We just happen to be the conduit of that, which means we need to not get in the way. 
right? The, uh, I've heard a, a theologian say the gospel is offensive enough. Let's not add any more to that personally. And that's the thing we need to make sure in rebuke. Don't bring your own baggage. You've got to be aware of what your own baggage is. Because, uh, like, just rebuking them in the, in the word of God, that's kind of offensive enough. I don't need to bring anything and add any fuel on that fire. So I think that's a good place to start. So here's some things that he, he mentions in terms of practical rebuke. It starts with ourselves. And this is exactly what Matt was sharing earlier. It's dealing with our own hearts. You have to know you before you could engage with someone else. A way that I like to visualize this is when you sit on the airplane and they do the whole uh, presentation about the, the air masks dropping down in case of cabin pressure. And what do they always say? If you're traveling with a small child, do they say put the kids on first? But what do they say? Put your own on first. Because if cabin pressure gets low and there's no oxygen and you pass out, how good are you to anyone else around you? So same thing. Before I could even imagine rebuking someone else, I got to remove that, own, that log from my own eye. I got to work on my own heart and know where I'm coming from. What's the motive that's, that's even driving me to have that conversation? Um, and in this, I might need to confess and forsake all the wrong thoughts and motives that are going on in me to someone else. So before I go to Josh and actually confront him about something, I might need to have a previous conversation with someone else about that. Like, hey, I need to have a talk with Josh, and I know it's, it's right, the thing I talk about, but I need to work through this other stuff first, so I need to make sure that it's, it's coming from a right place. We don't want to, like, uh, just assume and kind of justify the action of the reconciliation, even though our own stuff is still a mess. Well, it's okay, this is even worse right now. And now Matthew 7 comes into play. Exactly, and that's Matthew 7 stuff. Exactly, exactly. Take the log out of your own eye before you take the speck out of your brother's. Exactly. So along with this, we ask God, we start with asking God to provide love and courage and patience and wisdom to represent him well. You are speaking in the name of Jesus at this time when you're rebuking, because you're saying God doesn't want this, the Bible doesn't, you know, it says this. Therefore, you're, in a, you're literally representing God. So you need to make sure that you check yourself. We need to make sure that we check ourselves on this, because you are literally representing God. You, you are telling someone, God is saying this. But the tone and the mood and the manner you pre- are saying those words, that's, that's give, painting someone else a picture of who God is. And so how are you coloring in that picture uh, with the words and the motives and the affects of what's coming off of your body and, and your personality in that moment? So we start, and, and I don't know about you, but if you've been in a, a conf- conversation that could be a little weird and you're rebuking, um, like praying during the moment, like listening to the other person, but when you're not talking, literally praying during that, saying, God, help me not miss something, remove this, I know I'm getting mad right now, I know that this is going on, like, is that process, are you really engaging that process? Um, we don't, when we don't start with our own hearts, this is what will happen, we'll, we'll turn moments of ministry into moments of anger, and people can spot that, and then nothing's going to change, uh, we personalize things that are not personal, if someone is sinning, uh, it's like, at the end of the day, it's not, it's not your sin, but we act like it is. Like, this person is so terrible, and then we're carrying it like I'm the person who just, you know, the person just shot my dog or something. Um, and it, it's like, no, this it's actually isn't a personal thing. This person's sinning against God. It affects me, but this is not as personal as I'm making it. And it's way more of a sin against God than it is against me. We'll be adversarial in our approach. Uh, we'll confuse our opinion with God's word. And we'll settle for quick solutions um, that do not do something that I forgot to type in there. But probably are not helpful, fill in the blank. I guess that would work. Um, so ultimately, like, all this rebuke has to start with us examining ourselves. And, and you are just as much on the hook during this process as the person you're talking to, I think, when this, when this goes in. Um, 
we, under, we need to understand why people need to be confronted. And so after our, we're done preparing personally, we need to consider the goals. And we need to ask the question, why does this person need to be confronted? And, and understanding that, uh, you know, there's sin that blinds this person's heart. Um, whether it's a Christian or a non-Christian, all of us are still affected by sins. So let, let's, let's start with a non-Christian perspective first. I actually have some neighbors that I, I they're really difficult people to, to live by, uh, you know, drug dealers, and they're loud, and they're screaming, and our house, we can't keep the windows open in the summer because the house smells like weed, and it's just like, it's really tough people to, to live next to, right? And it's really easy to, like, go down that negative spot. But what I have to remind myself is, of is, why would I expect this person to act any different, right? It, it, like, the unregenerate heart is an ugly thing, so why would I expect them to act good? And while it would be better to have, like, the Mormon neighbor next door, who all you have to worry about is, like, the five kids jumping on the trampoline all the time. So it's like, I, don't, I have Mormon friends growing up, and, like, all of them have, like, a million trampolines. But, like, while that would be better in terms of, like, from a moralistic safety standpoint, the Mormon neighbor is no more closer to God than my drug deal neighbor is, right? And so why would I expect an unregenerate heart to act in a good way? So that's the first, and, and I'm not saying that as a way that I lord it over them. It's, it's literally breaking for them, saying, like, God please regenerate that person's heart. Give them new heart. Pour your spirit on them because they don't know to act any better. So just as my son, who's a year and a half old, he poops his pants quite often, you know, like in his diaper because that's what you do when you're a year and a half. And when he's like 15, I'll probably get upset if he does that. But at, 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 eight, at 18 months, it's like, well, this is just what you do, buddy. Let's grab some desitin. Like, because that's what you do at 18 months. You poop your pants. You don't poop your pants at 15 years old. And, and, and so the same expectation, I expect my unregenerate neighbor to act unregenerate. Now, with that in mind, when it's a Christian you're dealing with, that gets a little more weird because you expect them to ought to know better. But we're still dealing with people that word sanctification. While we've been justified before God, we've been made right, we're still in this process. And the process isn't always um, like this, this straight line, or actually we'll do this, this, where we're just getting better and better. Oftentimes sanctification is... Right? It's like that. And and so we need to remember it's not an excuse for people to sin, but people are people. And and we just need to take that into account. That's part of the sinful nature that we're still dealing with, the the remnants of it that still affect us. So why do we need to be confronted? Because of that. Uh, We need to be, you know, people need to be confronted in issues because we don't all possess perfect knowledge of God's word. And that's something that we're all learning about. Um, We're going to skim through some of these. You're not missing out on anything, because if you take the class in March, we're going to go through all this stuff, and you'll have a little workbook. Um, we also need to make sure that when we are rebuking, we are speaking with God's views, uh, in, or God's goal in view. So we are used as God's instruments of seeing in the life of another. Like I said, we're a part of a process. It's not about us. If the person changes, we even need to check ourselves, like, how excited are we going to be because they changed, and I was like, oh, God, I got them to change. Well, that's all about you getting them to change to be like you then, right? That's probably a, a bad motivation. The, where does the glory of God sit in this in terms of how we're uh, allowing people to change? And is he uh, truly the one getting the glory and I'm merely an instrument? Or am I actually just trying to get them to change for my sake so I could get them to be more like me? So it's really overemphasizing the point that says we help people clearly see themselves in the mirror of God's word. Um, and ultimately to be used of God as an agent of repentance. We're not pressuring or coercing people to change in behavior, which we talked about in the earlier session, 
but it's encouraging a heart change that impacts the person's response. And we've already spent time on that, so we won't go over that again. But that I know for me as someone who grew up in church culture, that's something that I hear a lot and I need to remind myself a lot of. It's not just changing people's behavior. Behavior will change because the heart changes. And, and so that's the goal. It's not just don't change the behavior and then hope the heart will change. And that can happen too. I, I think God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. And many of us have been the recipient of that. We stopped a behavior and then eventually the, the heart changed. Um, but ultimately, that's what we're going after is the heart there. And then uh, closing this thought out is, is, like I said, it's the gospel. It's the infinite vertical chasm versus the finite horizontal chasm that happens between people. So because God has reconciled us to the Father... Uh, in this, with this infinite chasm, we can reconcile to one another, which is just a finite chasm. And remembering that that's the goal and it's possible in every situation, that needs to be at the heart of it as well. That no situation is outside of the lens of being restored. Uh, we, we've all been in those relationships where it's like, well, this, there's no way this is fixable. And, and have you ever seen that where you knew something was going on with someone and like 10 years later, those two people are like best friends? Uh, and it, it's just, it's kind of amazing when those sorts of things happen. Um, but recognizing that if, if this can be reconciled, no relationship is out of bounds in terms of being reconciled. But it really needs to be masked in terms of saying, I'm viewing myself as an agent of God for his glory. It's not about me and getting someone to be more like the way I think. It, it's, it's truly saying, let's glorify God together through this process. And I might need to have an awkward conversation with you about it or multiple awkward conversations. Um, so those are the three things that Trip goes through, that, which I think are very helpful in viewing, you know, how we look at rebuke. Um, I don't know if you had anything on that or if you wanted to get into your stuff as well. Yeah, sure. Why don't we jump, jump ahead into the final section? I, I, so we, um, we actually signed a contract on a home this week. So one thing I didn't do was I didn't get to like the whole presentation, but you should have that in front of you. So I'm just going to say stick to this. We won't have anything up there, but hopefully it's clear enough and you're able to follow. Um, so here's, here's the thing. When we've just been, what we've just been talking about is, is addressing the negative side of, of the equation, the rebuke, right? It's the correction. It, it's weeding out uh, uh, the, the bitter root from the heart. But there's, there's an, a second step that we need to take here, and that is calling people to positive action, right? Doing one-on-one ministry does not end when you pull the weed out of the heart. There's another step that needs, needs to take place. You need, you need to plant like a flower there. You need to give them some direction. You need to point them in a positive direction. And so that is what we're going to focus on now. After you call someone to correction, now you need to call them to, to correct action. And so here's how we're going to start this off. I want us to think about two types of people. When it comes to calling people to correct action, there are people, we've talked about these a lot, these types of people, the fixers, right? We had you all raise your hands. We all made a joke about Vinny fixing Matt and telling him to turn on the projector, right? The fixers are those who hear 30 seconds of the problem and they, they cut off the, the other individual and they're like, all right, I got a solution for you. And then the person's like, I was only 30 seconds in. I haven't even hit the problem yet. How do you already have a solution for me, right? That's like a, a, a fixer. We were talking about the show Cheers, Right? I don't watch that show. 
I yeah, because it's about a bar. But we were talking about the show Cheers. I don't watch it, but Vinny does because, you know. Um, but there's the I mailman. watch VeggieTales. It's on Netflix now. What's the... <laughs> Mateo. Mateo. Yes, me and Mateo watch a lot of that. Wow. Anyway, go. Okay, yeah. so the, the mailman in Cheers, what's his name? I think his name was, uh, oh yeah, Cliff, I think so. Cliff. I've never watched that. Cliff, I think it was right? Cliff Clavin, Normie. Cliff, oh, you even know his last name. Okay, no. so proof point. I think that's point. what it is. Cheers guy. So um, you have this, this mailman, Cliff Clavin. Clavin. And Cliff Clavin, he's known as the fixer, right? He comes in and he, he, he just hears an, an ink, inkling of a conversation going on and he just is like, hey, I, I got a solution. I have the answer. Let me tell you all the things you didn't want to know about that topic, right? That's the fixer. But that doesn't necessarily describe all of us. Some of us are, are more fiddlers, right? We, we see the entry gate and we're just like, oh man, let's talk about that for a while. Let's talk about what's going on in your heart. Man, that seems like it's festering. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about that sore right there. And you just, you do a really good job helping people to see what's going on in their heart. But then when it comes to the end of the conversation, you're like, man, good time. And you just leave, right? All you did was help them really process what's going on in their heart. But you know, it, it, I think of my wife, right? When I do that with her, sometimes she just kind of is like, wait, where are you going? Like, what do I do? Like, what should I do, right? There, there's a place for offering trajectories, right? There's a place for offering some sort of action plan, right? You want to find the balance between these two sides of the spectrum, right? The fixer versus the fiddler who's just kind of, you know, playing with your emotions and trying to figure out every weed going on in your heart, but never offers any sort of action plan. So I know we only have 10 minutes left. Don't worry. I'm, I'm literally just, once it hits 1230, I'm just going to pray and then we're going to be done no matter where I'm at. But for the next couple of minutes, maybe at your tables, just spend a moment talking about which side of that spectrum you fall on. For me, honestly, I, I swear, some days I'm on the fixer. Some days I, I'm on the fiddler. I, I, I don't know. I, I'm just on the top of the roof teetering back and forth. So um, maybe talk about which side of that equation you fall on most often. I think most often I'm a fixer. But more so than that, Maybe talk about why you fall into that category. So not just which category, but think about why you fall into that category. And you got about maybe three, four minutes. That's plenty of time, right? Plenty of time to diagnose your heart, deal with all these things. <laughs> All right, we have just a couple of minutes left, just a couple of minutes left. It sounds like you're having good conversations, which is great. Um, but I want to get through a couple of things before we're done. Um, let me jump ahead. In, when, you, when you read through Paul Tripp's book, he, he gives for a, a process, like a four-stage process on how to help people um, uh, a do, this, this is his do section, like how to, to live out a godly life. And so there are four specific uh, steps he has here. And you'll see this in your booklet. I'm kind of skipping down towards the bottom. It's on the very back page. Yeah, so I'm essentially going straight to the back page. Um, so you'll notice these four different components on how to help people um, change and how to help them live in accordance with the gospel. So the first thing he says here is establish personal meeting, uh, 
agendas, right? So you, you, or ministry agendas, sorry, not meeting, ministry agendas. And here's what, here's what the idea is, is you need to help people understand the goal and you need to give them practical ways in order to meet that goal, right? And that'll just help, help the rest of the process if you're giving them like clear, specific examples on how to attain this goal. And this is when you're really diving into like one-on-one, we are really working through this together. And, and just for clarification, at this point, you know this person well, you know what their heart is going through. They know you, you love them and they're willing to hear you out. And so now that you know them, now that you know what they struggle with, now you're able to give them some clear and very specific uh, uh, ministry agendas, some goals. So, so and, Josh, real quick, yeah. what you're not saying is in the 10 minute conversation you're having when you're rebuking someone, you rebuke them and then you give them the list of all the things they need to fix and then you're good. Yeah, this okay, is- that's not what you're saying. Yeah, so <laughs> what, I, what I'm saying is now we are, we are down the road a little bit, right? Right, we have, we have left, uh, I, see I'm not familiar enough with Bart, I can't continue Matt's illustration, never mind. I, he said something about MacArthur. That would be the Fremont train if he sure. was still- Fremont. You know, Yeah, Oakland. you're no longer at oh, okay. Antioch, now you're at Fremont, like you're, you're down the road a little bit, you're giving them some, some clear insight because you know them and you know what they struggle with. Well, um, the next thing is to clarify responsibility. And this is extremely helpful, I think, especially in situations where you're helping someone with interpersonal conflict, interpersonal relationships, right? People, that, that, that's one of the main things people come to you with is I'm having this issue with my boss, my spouse, my child, so on and so forth, right? And you need to clarify responsibility in that moment and help the person that you're, you're meeting with to realize you are responsible for yourself. And, and fixing your spouse is in a real sense beyond your capacity and beyond your control. That's in God's hands. Like you can do what you can do, but you cannot control the way your spouse, your son, your, your boss responds. And so clarifying responsibility is something we cannot miss. We have to encourage people with that because it's so easy for someone to feel the depths of despair because their boss hasn't changed. It's like, no, that's not the goal. The goal is your heart and helping you to work through what's going on in your own, your own life. Okay, so next, and um, I wanted to camp in this, but we're just gonna be out of time. Um, but instilling identity in Christ, uh, this has been brought up over and over again. So. I'm going to rely on what you guys have said, but at the end of the day, you need to continually remind yourself and the people you are, you are speaking with that their hope for change is not found in themselves, right? This is, we're gonna go through this in the campaign when we get to the promise of the new covenant. This is coming up in a, fast forward to March uh, 5th, I believe, third is the, the, our week on the new covenant as we go through the campaign. Um, and there what we see is that our only hope for transformation is found in Christ. And you need to continually remind people of that. And you need to continually remind yourself of that. Remember Ephesians 2, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. Right? We were dead. Dead in the sense that we had no ability to obey God in any sort of moral sense. No ability to respond to the gospel until he made us alive together in Christ. And so that sort of hope is not limited to justification. That sort of hope is also, it it spreads into sanctification. Uh, Fourth 
is providing accountability. I know um, this, is, this is where we'll end. We, we talked about the fact that, um, you know, accountability can be tricky, especially when it just turns into behavior modification. That's not the goal. But when you think of accountability in light of everything we've talked about, now accountability has meaning and, and usefulness. If you know what a person actually struggles with at a heart level, now you can ask them, hey, not have, have you done this? That's not necessarily the, the accountability point here. Hey, are, are you still having those sorts of feelings towards your boss? Are you still having those sorts of attitudes uh, uh, spur up inside of your heart towards your spouse? Why, what caused that? Now all of a sudden your, your accountability is far more meaningful because you're not just talking about, about the, the behavior modification. Now you're talking about the heart. Um, and here's where I, I just want to encourage you. This is where small groups come in handy, right? Because we have a built-in for many of us once a week time connecting with people in our small groups. I mean, utilize that time well. Utilize that time well for the sake of accountability. Ask people, hey, how are things going uh, in that relationship with your boss? How, how are you dealing with that? You know, just having those sorts of connection points on a weekly basis, utilize that time well. You know, I, I don't want to down, downplay the importance of talking about football or whatever. Those things are good. They help foster community. But if that's all you are talking about in your time outside of, like, your specific study, that could be categorized as time wasted. So utilize your time well in your small groups. Utilize that time for the sake of, of gospel accountability. Um, with that, um, should we just pray? Uh, oh, you want to come up and... Okay, great. Jose's gonna I'll go. give one last plug okay. while Jose comes up here. Remember, we're going to start this stuff on March the 10th, it, you know, this particular study, and it's going to be in our ongoing uh, small group leader training class that we do during the third service, 1055. It's usually up in room 247. So this topic is going to go all the way through, uh, you know, through May. We're going to go, you know, spend 10 weeks on this. If, if you're still interested about, you know, there's a good number of you in this, in this room now who are doing the covenant study. Uh, starting tomorrow, we kick off our covenant campaign for the next seven weeks. And there's, uh, you know, we're actually teaching through the class over the next seven weeks how to actually engage that topic better. So there's still a, a few spots left if you're interested in joining that. Um, but, you know, that's open to you as well. You don't have to wait till March to get into that community of people as we learn and, and just do this stuff together so we don't have to lone wolf it. So anyway, that's all I got. What there. room is that in, Vinny? Uh, up in uh, 247. So it's kind of the, the big room up on the uh, I don't know, north side of the building, up the stairs. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, Thanks Josh. Thanks, Vinny. So again, I hope you guys uh, got a lot out of this. Uh, God is really teaching me a lot, and uh, I know that we are looking forward to sharing with you uh, March 10th, is it, when we start? Uh, but thank you for coming out today. Again, a reminder, tomorrow, small group leaders, if you get a chance by the portico after any of the services, uh, come on out, hang out with some folks, answer some questions, greet some people, hand out some brownies. Uh, we're just really looking forward to sharing that with other folks. And uh, maybe we could just uh, bow our heads and close in prayer. God, thank you for today. God, thank you that you love us. God, thank you that you bring people to us to minister to, but God, thank you that you minister to us first and foremost. God, I pray that we would uh, go as changed people, God, that you have touched our hearts here today. God, that we would see personal ministry as a call to each one of us. God, I thank you for what we've learned. I pray that you would go before us 
and I thank you for everyone who's been able to be here and to learn as well. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.